Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What killed nine hikers in the Ural Mountains of Russia in 1959? Is there any real evidence for a paranormal explanation? Did other strange events take place in the area at the same time? Greetings and welcome to the 577th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those life and death questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening we bring you back to one of the strangest incidents in that very strange 20th century. And we welcome your calls this evening. The numbers are 800-449-1240. That's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. And 401-766-1240 locally. Also, we will monitor your emails. You can email your questions to paul at behindtheparanormal.com. And don't forget about our Facebook page. You can like us on there as well. It's Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. You can ask us questions that way. Also, we have to uh, issue a warning to listeners here. We will try to tone it down, but some of the details of this case are very graphic and upsetting. So, Dad, let us start off. What is the background of this case? Okay, well, first of all, uh, I'll add uh, to that warning. Apologies to our station manager, who I understand eats dinner during this, uh, while listening to this show, so we'll try to try to keep it easy. Anyway, uh, well, Ben, it uh, became known as the Dyatlov Pass incident, and it's quite well documented. It involved the deaths several of them apparently violent from unknown causes of nine, I guess you could call them ski trekkers, and they did at that time in the Soviet Union, including two women in the northern Ural Mountains in February 1959. Now, uh, the background is that nine students, along with one middle-aged graduate who was uh, sort of a guide and attempting to upgrade his guide status, uh, started out in late January. Uh, they were from the Urals Polytechnic Institute, which still exists. Uh, today it's uh, known, as, uh, as I understand it, as the Ural State Technical University in what in the Soviet era was the city of Sverdlovsk. Today it's returned to its pre-revolutionary name of Ekaterinburg, and it's the fourth largest city in Russia. Now, the students were off on a skiing and a hiking trip that would take them about 400 miles north to the outskirts of the middle of nowhere. The communist authorities at the time encouraged activities like this because it sharpened young people's physical fitness, map reading skills, and things like that because they would be handy if they had to do military service later. Wait, really? Was that, was, that, was that really they're, they're like encouraging? Is it so they like encouraged activities like the Boy Scouts because it would get them ready for conscription or something? Yeah. Oh, well, I yeah. guess that makes sense. And when, you know, when I was in the Boy Scouts, I wondered about... Yeah, you know, it was it was great. Plus, you know, the great experiences and all these things are good. All physical activity is good. People probably uh, may have been a little healthier for it. That, know, that anyway. makes sense. Anyway, yeah. please. So anyway, the the leader of this expedition was one Igor Dyatlov, who was 23 years old, and he later had the pass named for him after he met his fate there. I guess that's sort of a odd bright side, like well, a I crooked suppose, yeah, bright side. Yeah, kind of a canted bright side in the geographical sense. Anyway, if you like having things named after you. They traveled uh, from Sverdlovsk by bus, train, and truck, anything they could find. Uh, finally, at the ri- arriving at the village of Vijay, the northernmost settlement in that area. And on January 27, 1959, they set off on foot to, uh, into the mountains. Now, shortly into this hike, one of the men, uh, Yuri Yefimovich, I uh, can't remember his patronymic, but Yuri Yudin, 21 years old, turned back because of illness. He picked up dysentery. Wow. Terrible. He only died two years ago, by the way, so he was a prime source for researchers on this case, at least when it came up 
I suppose to the expedition point anyway. Yeah, because I remember I watched a documentary on this, and they, they yeah, they, yeah, they they interviewed him. <laughs> really? Yeah, they interviewed him. It this was, is a really, really popular. People are very interested. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah that that was. It's like I guess that's why we're doing it. Right exactly. So right. Please continue. I don't mean to keep interrupting. No, no. Please do. That's all right. Some diaries and cameras uh, were recovered when the camp was found, so we know more or less how the trip went, even up to that very night of the incident. People did tend to keep diaries in those days, too, more than today. I guess, I suppose, do people... Well, some people keep diaries, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's not exactly... Electronically, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I know people who still write in diaries and stuff. Actually, but I, yeah, okay. But I guess, it, I guess it depends. All right. Well, anyway, the group's... Uh, Announced destination was a mountain, Mount Otort, Otorten, I guess you'd pronounce it. And that name comes from the dialect of the local Monsi, the Monsi tribe. Now, these are the indigenous people who lived uh, and still, I guess, live in that area of the Urals. Literally translated, uh, the name of that mountain means uh, Mount Don't Go There. Okay. <laughs> now, very much like the Native Americans here, especially in New England, you could find your way across the, the land by the names of places. In, in other words, you, you could find... There, there's... Um, oh, there are all kinds of names around here. For example, uh, in, in our, our listening area, uh, Pawtucket is place of Big Falls. Uh, Pawtuxet, place of... of uh, oh, no. Uh, Pata- uh, what was it? Pawkatuck. Wasn't that place of fish? No. It, well, that, well that, that involved a certain thing. I think it's pa- I, I, I'm, I'm a little... Shine mail. I can't. I can't, I can't remember. Yeah. But anyway, Pawkatuck, uh, uh, I think, was place of Little Falls, and uh, uh, and, and that there was Patuxet, which is no. This Pawkatuck was no falls at all. Patuxet was place of Little Falls. <laughs> but anyway, the point being, you could certain names uh, the natives gave. I mean, a place where you where you can fish, or a place where you can you can make pitch. Right. Uh, to, to seal boats with and that sort of thing. So it was the same thing in uh, the Ural area, and so Mount Don't Go There was named such because uh, of the hostile winter conditions there, exceptionally difficult, uh, not necessarily as far as I know because of maladjusted Bigfoot or secret alien bases or anything like this. So anyway, the hikers got to uh, Mount uh, Kolatsiakal, uh, which is also a Mansi word, and it roughly translates dead mountain. Because it's rocky and bare, and nothing nothing really grows there, and there are an awful lot of animals. So um, that's um, often translated as "mountain of the dead," which personally I think uh, so that conveniently provides a lot of shivers, but I don't think it's really the correct translation. I mean, I mean, you you'd think that <laughs> that would be like something that that like you know steers people away from it. It's like oh yeah, I can simply because there's well, nothing to eat. Welcome to imminent doom valley. Well, that like, kind of thing, yeah. And Mount of the Dead makes it more dramatic when you consider what's happened there, which we're about to, to get into. Anyway, uh, here's where it really kind of starts to get strange. Uh, the odd thing here is that Dead Mountain was not on their planned route to this Mount Atorton. Now, Dyatlov himself must have known that because he'd been to Atorton before. So here we are on February 1st, 1959, and the strange factors start to really line up. Now, first of all, I don't understand why they camped where they did, or at least where the camp was found. Uh, I have some experience with this kind of mountainous terrain in winter, and so did they. They were experienced winter campers and hikers, and they were well-equipped for that era. But they set up camp in a very exposed area above the tree line. You don't generally do that. 
They should have camped down among the trees for better shelter, especially in a wilderness area like this where changes in the weather were sudden and unpredictable. Now, uh, one possible explanation for their their going off course like this and, and coming to instead of going to Mount Don't Go There, coming to the Dead Mountain, was because perhaps the weather kicked up very unpredictably, and that happens in mountainous areas, and they may have been lost in a snowstorm. But there's no indication from their diaries. that They did comment on the bad weather, but I don't recall anything in the diaries that said they were lost. No, then the, the why maybe they were just I don't know I I'm, I'm trying to think. Well, we got all kinds of speculation coming up. Yeah, there's mil- millions of speculative speculative things, and probably anything that I'm going to say has already been said. So please continue. Well, I don't know. There's an awful lot of things that I don't think. Well, anyway, it looked as though to the searchers that these people pitched camp, got into their their large single tent that just helps concentrate warmth in the, these these climates, especially in those days before the advanced materials we have today for tents and, and coats and things. And anyway, they got into this tent and they seemed to have had supper. Okay. But sometime within the next few hours, of course it was pitch dark out there, uh, something happened to panic them. They cut their way out they cut their way out of the tent with a knife, apparently, and then they apparently started to run. Now bear in mind the snow was three to four feet deep and the temperature was fifteen below zero Fahrenheit. Kinda like what we've had here in New England lately. So uh, what they were doing was really suicidal. Now add to that the fact they weren't dressed, not entirely anyway, and some didn't even have boots or socks on, and one or two of them were barefoot. In those conditions, I don't even want to think about it. Searchers later found Dyatlov's coat a few yards from the tent, probably dropped it on the way out, who knows. Uh, Initially, uh, the campers seemed to have fled in the same direction, kind of down the mountain, but in some chaos, and then it looked as though they split up. Two of them ended up under a tree, four were next to a stream bed, or in, a, in this sort of ravine that was rather deep, and three apparently tried to get back to the tent, and of course no one ever heard from any of them again. So when did people figure out they were missing? Well, that, that took a while for several reasons. Now remember, this was the middle of the last century. No satellite phones, no GPS. I was in kindergarten and couldn't help. Uh, They didn't even have radios with them. So in what would have been, I guess, a few days after whatever it was that happened, happened, uh, Dietloff was supposed to send a telegram from Vijay on their way back to their sports club in Sverdlovsk to say that they were on their way home. And, of course, he was dead by then. Now, the sports clubs were part of the communist apparatus to get young people out to do these things and keep them organized and and involved in physically beneficial activities. So anyway, when the telegram never came, uh, nobody really did anything at first. A rumor started back in Sverdlovs that the whole group was trying to escape to the West. Uh, Soviets were known to do that from time to time. But escape uh, to anywhere from where they were would have been a miracle. Uh, it was only when the parents complained to the Communist Party officials in Sverdlovsk that a search was mounted. So how long did it take the searchers to find the camp? Well, it took three weeks <laughs> from the time of the incident. Uh, they didn't find the camp until February 26th. Jeez. So they've been like, dead for, for forever at that point, probably frozen. Well, yeah, we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah, uh, with so the, please continue before I, I give away... Uh, Anyway, well, one problem was that the initial searchers were just volunteers. They were mostly students and teachers from the Euros Polytechnic Institute, and uh, they had to make that whole 400-mile trip. They, they, they didn't seem very well organized. They had to make this whole long trek to get there. 
so, and they didn't exactly know about good forensic methods. I mean, they, they kind of bumbled all over the scene, picking things up and wiping out any footprints that could have served as evidence. And there was no real control in the modern sense that you would have. Sounds kind of like the Soviet Union in general. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, so a fellow named Mikhail Shiravin was a student who found the tent. Uh, he was quoted as saying, quote, The tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty, and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind, unquote. Now, eventually, the army, local militia, and private citizens pitched into the search. Uh, the troops came in with helicopters, and that messed up the scene even more, because they didn't know how to do anything either. Uh, so the mysteries mounted rapidly from there. Now, now here's, remember this background of sort of chaotic searching uh, when you hear the rest of this. Uh, along with the condition of the tent was the condition of the bodies once they were found. And again, here's where it gets a little graphic, so listeners take warning. Uh, the bodies were frozen, of course, as you suggested, uh, but there were injuries, including fractured skulls and broken ribs. Not, not for all of them, but some. Uh, the first uh, two found were, were uh, Yuri uh, Krivonashenko and Yuri Doroshenko. A lot of Yuris involved in this group. Uh, they were under a cedar tree and had apparently started a fire. They were without shoes and dressed only in their underwear. So I would start a fire, too, in those conditions. Uh, they, there was some evidence perhaps their clothes may have been taken later. So they apparently had climbed this tree, uh, probably to break off dead wood as fuel, I, I would think, because with the s snow that deep, you wouldn't be able to find firewood under, you know, on the ground, probably. Between the tree and the tent, three more bodies were found, uh, the, that of Dyatlov himself, Zineda Kamolgarova, and Rustem Slobodin. Right? It appeared that they were trying to get back to the tent, as we said. Now, Dyatlov and Slobodin both... They were, uh, Slobodin was 23 years old. These are all young people, obviously. Had injuries to their hands that were consistent with a fist fight. That was one of the strange things. Now, people have said, aha, they, they fought back when the Yeti uh, attacked them or the Bigfoot attacked them and tried to, uh, you know, do harm, and they fought back. Well, maybe. Uh, now, the, th the interesting thing is Dyatlov and... Um, one of the, the girls were, uh, was, um, were uh, sweethearts, so there was some suggestion maybe they had a fist fight over her. Uh, I don't think that's true. Any experienced camper, especially in, in a critical situation like this, is not going to start arguing about a love triangle or whatever was going on. So I don't think there's right. any merit to that. Yeah, no. The remaining four were, weren't found until May 4th. They were face down under... Well, depending on who you talk to, uh, I have heard... I've seen f four meters of snow, which is a little less than 12 feet. Seems like an awful lot, but of course, you have to remember the wind conditions. Anyone in our listening area who's been through the, the, the last month and a half here in the uh, sub-tundra uh, conditions here knows that the snow blows when it's powdery and it can pile up tremendously. And it's, it's almost difficult to see how much has fallen because it piles up in certain areas and not others. Right. Some areas might be almost clear. So anyway, there was a lot of snow in this ravine in the woods below the cedar tree. Uh, they were dressed, but in clothes belonging mostly to other members of the party. Um, Semyon Zolotarev was wearing Ludmila Dubinina's fur-coated hat, while Dubinina's foot was wrapped in a piece of Yuri uh, Kravonashenko's wool pants. So 
they may have gone back to get clothes or tried to get back. So we really don't know how this happened. Now things really start to get weird. Uh, three of these four in the ravine had fatal injuries. The unlikely named uh, Nikolai Thibault Brignol had a major, I don't know what he was doing with a French name, had a major skull fracture, while Dubinina and Zolotaryov had serious chest and rib fractures, almost as if the three of them had been in some sort of a crash. Yet there was no external injury uh, on any of them to correspond with the fractures. That's really strange. The biggest mystery here was uh, Ludmila Dobinina, 21 year, years old, and uh, again, this is graphic but necessary, her eyes, tongue, and part of the lips and a skull fragment had been removed. The autopsy report said deliberately removed, not violently detached. Unlike the other three, she was found not face down but kneeling against a large boulder. At least that's what the photography says. Okay, I'm going to skip a little bit here because I think it's too graphic. But uh, The fourth of the four at that ravine was the oldest of the group, Semyon Zolotaryov, uh, the fellow who was um, trying to upgrade his guide uh, status. Uh, he was in his late 30s, and he was a combat veteran of World War, World War II, which was not pretty uh, on the Russian front. Uh, the Germans and the Russians hated each other. They really did, and the terrible things took place, and because that took place all over the place in World War II anyway, but the Germans and the British and the Americans kind of, you know, there wasn't that, that really, in most cases, there wasn't that hatred. Like, a, well, this is, well the, the Russian and German hatred is very, very, very deep. Terrible. Yeah. Well, it was very far. So anyway, this, what this fellow must have gone through, uh, I can't imagine. So unless he had serious post-traumatic stress from that experience, uh, he was a man not easily frightened, big guy. Uh, he, also had, he also had broken ribs and internal injuries, as if he'd collided with something or something had uh, really um, struck him. But again, he had no external signs of these injuries either that, that could be discerned. Uh, the autopsy report stated that the bodily injuries from all these were caused by, quote, an unknown elemental force, unquote, whatever that means. Yeah, wh what does that mean? <laughs> so what happened? Well, we're, okay, well, uh, there, there are all kinds of ideas and theories and speculation, but frankly, uh, Ben, I've never heard an explanation that fully accounts for all the circumstances in this case, especially the injuries. Now, in those conditions, where they were, you can freeze, you can starve, but fractured skulls, broken ribs, and radioactive contamination... Yeah, that, I remember that part. I remember the radioactive part. Yeah, well, the they, they, we'll we're going to look into that as well. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of Now, weird. that said, uh, there was all sorts of confusion once the site was found, as we implied, and I feel that much of the subsequent investigation was sloppy. I also suspect that evidence was removed, planted, or tampered with for reasons or reason or reasons unknown. Then there's the misinformation and the embellishment that comes with any case people think involves the paranormal. So this whole situation is a mess. There are certain facts, but the speculation is right. Naturally, uh, some theories bring in aliens uh, or the military with perhaps sound-based, maybe infrasound or concentrated energy weapons that might explain the internal injuries, but not necessarily the broken bones. But that begs the question, why were only a few people injured in this way, in this group? Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Well, so... 
anyway, what, what uh, one wonders, well, what did the Soviets think of this? Yeah. Uh, and, of course, they treated it like a criminal investigation, interestingly enough. It was led by a local police official named uh, Lev Ivanov, and when he went to the scene, he inexplicably brought a Geiger counter. Now, how many police detectives do you know bring, a Ge- bring Geiger counters to a crime scene? Maybe right. you just happened to have it. I don't know. You happened to have a Geiger counter laying around. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I never know. Could, could well, regardless maybe. of the explanation, it's a good thing he did bring a Geiger counter because he found the area, according to him, more radioactive than it should have been, uh, as were some of the clothes. And, of course, this has brought in speculation uh, that uh, from everything from this nearby stream in the ravine being contaminated to uh, exposure to UFOs or aliens or whatever, and that causing the, the contamination. The, um, there is a certain amount of natural radioactivity in the environment all the time. A lot of people don't realize that. But bear in mind, this was the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. There was a great deal of a covert Soviet military activity taking place in the will in these wilderness areas, and some of them anyway. And there were many open-air atomic bomb tests going on in both the USSR and the southwestern U.S. So radiation in many areas was above natural levels simply because of upper-level winds. As a matter of fact, I remember in the Northeast at the time, the teachers telling us that the Good Sisters of Mercy at St. Mary's School in East Hartford, Connecticut, told me, "Don't eat the snow." Okay, his word was getting out about that because you know you, we used to love to go out and eat snow. You, you, you were always discouraged from doing that, but uh, yeah. But in, in uh, back in the day, uh, we we did that. It was kind of fun until it became radioactive. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So they told us not to do that. So uh, this is all tied in with these reasons for uh, the spread of um, the uh, nuclear fallout uh, from these un- uncontrolled tests, or at least uh, open air tests. Anyway, interestingly, two of the students at uh, Dyatlov Pass had worked in closed nuclear facilities. And there had been a nuclear waste accident at uh, Chelyabinsk, somewhat to the south of Sverdlovsk, in 1957, and one of these students had been there. So the radiation might not mean anything especially, especially weird, and nobody really knows. Now, obviously, the clothes, I hope, would have been washed in the previous two years, so <laughs> w- whether you know why they would still have contamination from that would be highly suspect. Yeah, that doesn't. Make However, sense. Um, contamination internally, there might be some contamination from this, but but again, it's it's really difficult to tell. So anyway, with that in mind, uh, researchers find it odd that the higher up they go in the Russian chain of command, even today the fewer people will talk to you about this uh, Dyatlov Pass incident, especially in the FSB, the Federal Security Service, which is the successor to the dreaded KGB. Now, on the other hand, there are still people alive uh, who were involved in the search. They're quite willing to talk, but again, they don't know very much. So I'm going to stop here. We can discuss amongst ourselves here for a minute, take our break, and then get back to the points that might start explaining some of this. Sure. So uh, what what did they? I I didn't see that documentary you saw. What? Uh, I didn't know about that. I didn't know that. Did that they draw any they... impressions from? Uh, uh, well, the I evidence? mean, it, it, they didn't really do that. I mean, they they had um uh, the guy who who turned who turned back okay. on there. Yeah, yeah. And, he I mean, died he was, in twenty thirteen. He was a great source. With yeah, well, this was a kind of old documentary. It was like early two thousands that yeah. it was made. But um, well, unlike, he, unlike the, the the officials, he he'd, he'd talk to anybody. 
Pretty much, yeah. yeah. To, but he didn't see anything. Here that was you, the thing. And he, and he just said, you know, this was just a routine hiking thing. And he's like, I just got really sick and had to leave. He's like, yeah. I don't... He's like, all these people were good people. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like some people talking about every, every, like people getting into fights and all. He's like, they were all friends. They wouldn't yeah. have done that. Yeah, sure. He's like, that. This, that's why this makes it so strange to me. He's like, I'm still, like, wondering what happened. Yeah. Because like, exactly. there's no concrete explanation from okay. anybody. Well, that's it. But... Okay, well, let's let's get into that after our break. And uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 and streaming live on onworldwide.com, New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, which is finally beginning to thaw out. So we'll be right back. Hi, this is Don Brunell inviting you to join me for ON Midday, weekdays from noon to 2, right here on ON 1240 Radio. We've got gold cuts, guests, and our daily super quiz. The Midday Show, right here on ON, local radio at its best. ON Radio, ON Worldwide. And I just wanted to remind you, we just wanted to remind you of some of the charities Ben and I have adopted on our show. And we'll tell you more about them at the end, but check them out in the meantime. And that is USACares.org, BuildersHelpingHeroes.org, Canadian Veterans Advocacy as well. Great, uh, both sides of the border, great charities for uh, our veterans, okay? Also out in San, out, not San Francisco, he wouldn't like that. Los Angeles, very different place. Uh, Tony LeRae out there with YouthMentoringConnection.org. YouthMentoring.org. I should say YouthMentoring.org. It's Youth Mentoring Connection. Doing great things for at-risk youth using ancient wisdom. And again, nothing occult about it. Uh, Just good common sense from our ancestors that applied to the young people who really respond to that today. People would be surprised. And doing great things for at-risk youth. So uh, we'll tell you more about that at the end of the show. So let's get back to our... Uh, discussion on the grisly events at uh, Dyatlov Pass in, in Russia in 1959, uh, the death of nine, uh, well, eight students and one older uh, guide, and um, very, very uh, mystifying case uh, even today. So here are some of the points, and uh, Ben and I, we can bat this around and see what you think. Uh, the clothes, uh, people wearing the clothes belonging to others, because this is how they were found at the end. Uh, if, if they were clothed at all, because they apparently, uh, just to remind you, went running out, having cut the tent with a knife, went running out from inside the tent and um, into four, three and four feet of snow, 15 below zero, half-dressed, uh, sometimes not even wearing boots, and of course, naturally they, they were done for, really, with that, and then, of course, the injuries later on. There was some speculation that the four in the ravine uh, had been stripped of some of their clothes after they died. Now, of course, that could have been uh, they could have been taken by the others to help them survive the cold. But, you know, th- th- that's sensible because others were found with some of these, these, these clothes on, I guess. But how could they get, how could they first of all know where they were uh, in this ravine? And how would they know um, how to get down it? Because it, it was rather a drop. And uh, I, I just, I don't know if that really holds water. It's as if someone took their clothes but who? You know, and the two under the tree, the three who were... T- you, know, the, the, this, you couldn't just sort of walk over when you have three and four feet of snow. So it's, it's difficult to decide on, on that situation. Injuries that we've described. Skeptics point out that falling over the cliff into the ravine might very well account for the injuries on three of the people found there. 
And that does make a certain amount of sense, given the wind and weather factors. There could have been some exposed rocks. They might have hit that. But even if that were true, why would there be no apparent external injuries to correspond? So I'm Yeah, exactly. Because I thought about that, too, when we were going over that point. And I was just like, well, I mean, they were found at the bottom of a ravine. But yeah. like, at the same time, they at least have like bruises or something. Well, you'd think. And it's very likely that, that, you know, sort of stumbling away from a camp at night. And, of course, it's not pitch dark because somehow there is this, you know, the snow does reflect whatever light there is. And uh, the, but still, still, it's, a, it's a lot of if snow. If it was a snowstorm, then they couldn't well, see where they were going. And you're panicking, and you fall over, and you could very easily end up in the ravine that way. But uh, snow isn't generally that hard. <laughs> Uh, powdery snow, so you, you would have landed perhaps softly, unless there were rocks sticking out, which is very possible. Mm. So that that, but again, why no external injuries? That doesn't seem to make sense that way. Yeah, that doesn't make any uh, sense. The girl's injuries, this Ludmila Dubinina, uh, who was missing the tongue and the eyes, could have occurred through natural decomposition if she had been lying down as the other three were in the ravine, face down. Why? I don't know why they were, would have been face down. But photographs uh, indicate that she, she wasn't in that position, and she probably would have would have had to be in the stream for that kind of for that to have occurred naturally. And the other three show, showed no such uh, deterioration, no such decomposition. Yeah, I mean they were covered under snow for like, well, for a while. Yeah, but, but that 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 I, we we actually had to study this in the service to some degree. Really? Uh, yeah, uh, and, and the condition when, when uh, if freezing occurs. Unless they're thawing too, uh, there is, it isn't perfect preservation. But you usually don't have deterioration of that kind, you know. So that's uh, that's another open question. Right. Uh, military involvement. Witnesses reported that some high Soviet military fi- officials, including at least one general, monitored this search. Now that's kind of strange when it comes to missing skiers. Uh, then again, military personnel were involved in the search, but I suspect that there might have been. A more sinister reason, which I will get into in a little while. Uh, the final reports by the police and others, there were inconsistencies in the final police reports. One official uh, who pointed that out was told not to mention it again or else. Now that came out after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, and there were there was a lot of, of, of loosening up when it came to information. Uh, some UFO information was released, or supposedly, anyway. Uh, well, it's not supposedly, it was, but uh, whether it was really critical information, we don't know. But uh, right. they, they seem to, there's a lot more openness now uh, than there was, uh, for example, there was a lot of speculation, this isn't related to this case, but uh, after the death of Hitler, uh, when the Russians were uh, taking Berlin, uh, what happened? To him, you know what happened to his body, and, and uh, that information came out. The, the Soviets had uh, some remains, and, and they thought it was whatever. So anyway, a lot of stuff came out that had not. Yeah, the Soviets been were, were they like all the Soviet records pretty much got divulged once the Soviet Union. Not about all, but all, a lot. Well, a lot of them did. Yeah, yeah, as far as we know, because there were millions of documents. Yeah, that's true. But as I said, you know, there is an opinion which I share that evidence was deliberately tampered with at the scene of the Yatlov Pass case and later on. Now, for example, Yuri Yudin, the fellow you just mentioned in that documentary. Uh, the one who uh, left the group because of illness, it was a good thing he did, later said that some ski equipment placed in evidence in the case hadn't belonged to anyone in the group. Oh, yeah. I remember that, actually. Okay. <laughs> I right. forgot about that detail. That was kind of important. Right. Yeah. Uh, the recovered tent 
disappeared. And there were reports of a second camera that was never found. They found the Atlas camera, which had some pictures, but there was supposed to be a second camera found at the site, and that apparently disappeared. Now, I don't know, people maybe took them as souvenirs. And again, there was no control at this end. Uh, there are, of course, paranormal theories attacked um, perhaps by Yeti or abducted by aliens. I feel like a- anything really that happens that doesn't have much of an explanation, the first thing that gets jumped to is uh, aliens. Aliens and a- aliens and cryptids. Well, it's it. not impossible. It's not impossible. But you look at other things first. Yes. Because they are more likely. But again, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later. Uh, there's the avalanche theory uh, that maybe they heard rumbling and were trying to get away from that. And that's why they, they fled in panic. But that, I don't think, really holds water either because they were less than 1,000 feet below the mountaintop and the terrain wasn't that steep. Usually you see avalanches. That they're in, it's in much steeper terrain, uh, very often from cliffs and uh, very high mountains, things of this kind. Uh, that really was not the kind of area where that would occur, especially not a severe avalanche that would really kill anybody. And, and in fact, there was no evidence of an avalanche, at least when the searchers arrived, and as far as we know. Yeah. Uh, the Monsi people, the, again, the indigenous people who lived in this area, there's a theory that maybe they killed the local Monsi. Uh, they killed uh, the, the, the uh, hikers, but the Monsi are nomadic herders. However, that was um, uh, Ivanov's first theory, because in, ni- in the 1930s, when uh, communists... See, the... the, the the Soviet Union was enormous country, biggest country in the world. And even Russia today is absolutely huge. So when the communists took over, they attempted to bring uh, every, every part of the country under control and to bring their ideology into every school and everything else, every community. And that took a long time. So it was the 1930s by the time, uh, well, actually, well, it was really late into the 20s that the, the communism, communism started to reach these, these uh, outlying villages and places like this. And in the 1930s, a Soviet geologist, it was known that the Mansi did kill a Soviet geologist. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but they were not generally uh, hostile people, especially not by the 1950s when they'd been brought into line. And yeah. They even helped in the search. Uh, for these people. So uh, Ivanov quickly decided that uh, there was no real evidence to support that theory. So um, then there's the theory of Yeti, of course, or wolves. And for this purpose, considering uh, Yeti animals, which might not be acceptable to some researchers, I think they're, they're hominids, certainly. There's no real evidence of that either. But of course, evidence of footprints or struggle in the snow or whatever the two might have had a fist fight with, uh, would have been long obliterated by the time the bodies were found, especially with these guys blundering all over the place when they got there uh, in the search. Um, there could, however, have been wolf packs or Russian brown bears, which are famous for not hibernating. They kind of wander around in the winter and just look, just look for something to eat. And there are plenty of Yeti theories, and there were sightings, of course, all over the Euros, and there still are. However, the bodies had no bite marks, uh, or broken bones that were consistent with an animal attack, and no flesh had been eaten. Which is actually kind of weird, because if, if you think of all the scavengers wandering around like the Russian wilderness, that they hadn't been picked over at all. That, that is a little strange, but again, remember, this is, this is Dead Mountain, where nothing really lived or came. That's a good point, reason. too. Yeah, yeah. So, so that, plus, if you bur- they're buried in the snow. Uh, however, I, I, I still find that is kind of an odd point, that, that you think there would have been some kind of scavenging going on. Yeah, even by uh, birds or something. 
Well, yeah, yeah, you'd think, but uh, there wasn't. Um, unfortunately, we can't be entirely sure of every fact in this case. Uh, as I said, I think the investigation was sloppy. All governments are notoriously incompetent, but the Soviet government's ineptitude itself bordered on the supernatural. And paranormal <laughs> true believers tend to be just that, so they can't always be relied on. So uh, here's some, uh, some material that was found in the subsequent uh, research over the years. Okay, and I, I can't vouch for this either, but some of it I, I think is, is true. Uh, the case files were not classified. There's a big rumor that the case files and the, you know, were classified by the military. Uh, from everything I can find out, that is not true. Uh, they were messed up. Everything was sloppy, and it was it was a disaster that way. So I suppose, because that's also a good way of keeping secrets. I don't know, but they were not classified. Uh, there are no existing records that can be found, at least, of any weapons testing or experimental aircraft being uh, tested in that area in 1959. But, of course, that doesn't; those records would probably be classified. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because things, things are classified for um, long periods of time. Um, often uh, a century is not unusual sometimes. Uh, there was some research I did for uh, an article that I wrote for Yankee Magazine some years ago about uh, Chopmist. It's too bad we can't get into history on this show because this is interesting. A place called Chopmist Hill here in Rhode Island in the town of Situate that was the scene of a radio uh, uh, outpost, radio monitoring outpost connected with the Federal Communications Commission, our dear friends of any broadcaster. And uh, they were responsible for monitoring German and Japanese communications during World War II, and there was something about that site that made it so receptive, they picked up things like inter-tank communications between Rommel's commanders in the Battle of North Africa. <laughs> I mean, there's astounding. Even to this day, you can go up there and turn on a CB radio, if there still are such things, and pick up people in the Midwest. It's, it's amazing. Wow. So uh, <clears throat> that sort of thing. Um, th so there, there are, um, there's much about that that is still classified, because I managed to, for the article, managed to talk to the commander of that station two weeks before he died. And people in that, that time had a sense of keeping their mouths shut. They don't anymore. But uh, he said there's still material that will be classified until the year 2069. So that's well over a century, as far as that, uh, that case was concerned. Or that, that, that so this is an example of stuff that we don't know that is probably classified, even though the records of the actual search and uh, autopsy and stuff is not classified on the Dyatlov uh, past case. So in any case, uh, <clears throat> there were um, reports of a handwritten note, and this came up on a show I was interviewed on, that said something like, we now know the snowmen are real. Snowmen presumably not meaning the happy guys you see with the carrot <laughs> sticking out of their heads. Frosty has come. <laughs> yeah, right. By the t uh, talking about Yeti or what we would translate the abominable snowman and the adorable snowman, whatever, uh, maybe attacking the camp. Uh, I think that is bogus or is planted. I mean, ben, I mean, think of it. You're in a panic. You're in a mass panic with a group of people trying to escape, and you stop to write a note. Yeah, it's like, hold on, guys. I, mean, I don't think so. We've got to document this. Yeah, so I think that that's bogus or was planted. Uh, the radioactivity one report says, was not outside natural levels on either the clothes or the... So that, if that, I don't know that 
to be true or not true, but that is that is a report that has come up from some researchers. Uh, reports that the area was sealed off by the military after the incident weren't true. I have checked that, and that seems to be the case. Uh, it was only close to amateur hikers like the Dyatlov group, uh, you know, obviously so nobody else would get whatever happened to them, you know. So uh, there, there is a lot of misinformation. So here's my theory. You want to hear my theory? Please. Okay. If things are what they appear to be in this case, then I lean more toward a military explanation. And we'll get into some of the paranormal explanations later. Uh, because what, what, what have we found? We find that the military investigates and seems to set up shop very often in areas where paranormal flaps are going on because we love to weaponize the paranormal and we like to find out how we can use the principles of what we would say of the multiverse in a military fashion. Okay. Yeah. However, th- th- this may not be the case there. So in the Dyatlov case, uh, the group of hikers might have stumbled on a military test. The area was sparsely populated, not well-traveled. Soviets were experimenting with a number of advanced weapons. And also, I'm thinking of that period, too, they were experimenting with parachute mines. So certain these, or certain bombs dropped from planes and exploding a few hundred feet in the air, or even concussion bombs, might explain at least some of the injuries. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah, because you can have internal injuries from that. Like, uh, uh, I think, fuel air bombs? Is that what those are? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Well, the, well the, the super big ones, yeah. Yes, those. But you, you can have uh, sometimes internal injuries from those, from, from the, the, the concussion. The force. Uh, yes, from yeah. the force of it, uh, you know, and not have really external injuries that are very obvious, but depending on the circumstances. Right. But again, why were only some of them? injured in that way, and the ones who had fallen or stumbled into the ravine or just gone into the ravine would have been more sheltered than any of the others, unless they were blown into the ravine by something. Right. So, I mean, we just don't know, and of course, they're not going to tell us, even the Russians to this day. I think they might very well have died or been killed somewhere else, and that the bodies were dumped where they were found by the searchers. I feel like this is like Clue. Like what a, kind? Like, yeah, like a yeah, weird yeah. Soviet version of Clue. At uh, Professor Plum, is that Clue? Or, uh, or Professor Plumsky. Or General Plumsky. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 yeah. So uh, I think that that might be a very plausible explanation for some of this. If it was a military accident, whoever put them there might, might have made it look like they died on the mountain uh, in unexplainable circumstances. And you might say, well, why not just make them disappear? I was asked this once on the air, and it's, you know, having some experience with military and the intelligence, uh, well, you know, earlier in my career, uh, I think it's very possible that um, if you just disappear people, the questions are going to keep being asked. People will keep searching. Sooner or later, they're going to find something. And that's not good if you're trying to keep something secret. Better to make it look like something unexplainable uh, or in, in a different place, different circumstances, and that, that will keep people looking the other way. Because in intelligence work, you, you don't today especially, you don't want to necessarily keep things secret because you really can't. Just clamming up won't do it. You get people looking the other way. And I think that certainly would... Uh, 
explain this kind of situation uh, if that was the case. So again, they may have stumbled onto a military accident, uh, and them being um, deposited in this place, perhaps after being killed, would explain why they were in the wrong place in the first place. Because as we said, this mountain was not on their route. So I think that's possible. Um, It also could explain some of the injuries, perhaps. Now, the thing that really um, bothers me, the only thing that really bothers me me about that explanation are the injuries uh, Dubininov had. Uh, Deliberate removal of those, uh, of the eyes and the tongue would be incredible cruelty if that was done deliberately by military personnel. I mean, like maybe like interrogation or something? I don't, I don't know. Well, the, the, this, the, this is kind of... Uh, Yuri um, Yudin, who was the one who left the group early and survived, and whom you saw interviewed on television, yep. said that Dubinina was the most loquacious member of the group. She would tell you what she thought of you in no uncertain terms. And she talked a lot, and this sort of thing. So I just considered it rather ironic that she's the one with the missing tongue. All right? And very, very strange situation. Now, wh- whether that was just something he thought he remembered or made up, I don't know. But it's just really strange. But why, why the other situations, uh, with the other missing uh, parts, I, I, don't, I don't really know. So other than that... The military explanation and the uh, off-site deaths might be the explanation for that. And, of course, remember, the Soviet, really any military, but the Soviet military in particular, was nototorious for going to great lengths to cover things up. And, again, that really was... Uh, was yeah, but this is kind of, like, ridiculous. <laughs> this is like well, yeah, going sure. overboard, even for the Soviets. Sure. Uh, uh, now, yeah, well, that's true. Uh, now, um, the uh, fractures could have resulted from being dropped from a height on those four people. Uh, now, this is interesting, too. The tent, as found by the searchers, seemed to have been set up incorrectly. And that would be consistent with somebody just putting it, putting it there to make it look like that was where they had camped and been, and been killed. Yeah, which explains why they put it in a place where experienced hikers wouldn't camp. Well, if that was accurate information. Right. You know, and it certainly would uh, not be consi- an incorrectly set up tent would not be consistent with their experience as hikers and, and skiers and uh, wilderness operators, that sort of thing. No. Uh, the military explanation would also account for the interest by military officials and the secrecy, because there was some secrecy on this. On the other hand, uh, some sort of alien incident would explain those things as well. And, of course, we don't like to go there because that's probably not the most likely explanation. However, let's let's get... Let's get crazy. Let's let's get extreme here. All right. Let's get real weird with it. Okay. <laughs> the multiverse, these parallel worlds we're often talking about, are um, the normal state of creation. All right. We are existing in uh, with that as the background, and the paranormal is what we call anything we don't understand, but really which we think may be related to the activities of these parallel worlds and the interactions and this sort of thing. Uh, we have evidence that the military is aware of this, or governments, or whoever, and that experiments are done. Uh, We have investigated one case particularly, not too far away, uh, in New England here, where we believe that that may be taking place. Uh, I was um, chased across the desert in Nevada, near the area 
called Area 51, supposedly. And uh, that was not a pleasant experience. We've talked about that on other shows. So something is going on that somebody wants to get you looking the other way. And uh, it is entirely possible that research may, this, this may be an area, and there are, and which I'll get into in a minute if we have time, uh, other things that have taken place in that area. That I was just going to ask you about that. There may be uh, a flap. So it is possible that um, somebody may have been using or involved with the paranormal research, as we would call it, and they may have stumbled onto that. It is possible that aliens, no matter how you might describe them, uh, whether most people think they're from other planets, could be, uh, or from uh, parallel worlds, other versions of ourselves. I mean, all that can be, I suppose, considered alien, and all that is allowed for in certain interpretations of quantum physics and this idea of multiple worlds. So it is possible that that happened. One um, um, semi-dubious, uh, I suppose, contention among the evidence uh, <coughs> gatherers is that the bodies were in different states of decomposition. They should not have been decomposed at all because of the, if they had been frozen on the site, uh, there would have been some deterioration, but not standard decomposition. Right. The the notion that um, if you, if that if thawing had taken place and a refreezing, there might have been some decomposition there. Supposedly, was some evidence for that, and the time. And situation would not really allow for that unless there had been some uh, exposure to other uh, elements, other uh, circumstances, other temperatures, perhaps in some parallel world scenario. But again, I think that's really reaching. But you never know. I mean, you have to. You can't reject any of these things. So, um, at least one report that I know of, uh, concurrent with these events. Uh, was uh, was received and these uh, that's reliable and these were reports of strange lights in the area during February and March of 1959. Could have been UFOs or military aircraft. Uh, of course, UFO, strictly speaking, is just something that's unidentified. It might be perfectly explainable. A group traveling in the wilderness to the south of the Dyatlov Pass group uh, during that same period reported quote bright flying spheres. Okay. Oh, like ball lightning. Well, I don't know. You tell me. In 2002, and of course, you know, we're always talking about how these things are never isolated. They always affect whole areas and perhaps even over long periods of time. Right. In 2002, a local resident and an independent investigator by the name of Yuri Yakimov, who is well known in his own right, experienced lights like that himself while working in a quarry at night. Now, he reported what he called powerful lights in the nearby woods that began to split up and move toward him, but only when he looked at them. That's interesting. So there seemed to be some kind of rudimentary consciousness behind them. Uh, Yuri would hide, uh, and then he heard an electrical pop, as he described it, and the lights disappeared. Uh, a forest ranger in the same area had the same experience some weeks later. And both men described something very interesting. They described a feeling of complete and abject terror in the presence of these lights. Now, I suppose uh, no if you were seeing well, lights things kind of consistent with ball lightning cuz I remember watch, I remember like learning a little bit about about ball lightning and it, yes. it tends to pop and sizzle with the extremely precisely warm or the extremely hot uh, was it is it it's plasma, right? It's basically plasma. Effectively, yes. Yeah, yes. it's electrified air molecules. Yes. And a plasma keeps coming into the paranormal here and there. It seems like there are um, 
electromagnetic boundaries, maybe made up of some sort of plasma, that um, seem to, to crop up in photographs and in readings and in even, even the naked eye when you're dealing with paranormal phenomena from time to time. And so that, that's interesting. And, and it really is electrical. Everything is really electrical. And that's the thing. I remember um, talking to someone here in Rhode Island who had a ball lightning experience right in their own house. So she was in her living room, and she heard this sizzling. She turned around, and there was a big like basketball-sized uh, ball of plasma, I guess, sort of just hovering inside the window. And all of a sudden, there was a big pop, and off it went. And she, she was terrified, but it was ball lighting, and th- that often uh, You know you can happened. recreate it in a microwave? Yes, you can. That's right. Uh-huh. So anyway, uh, and uh, but do you know that it will respond to your presence or because I, because I've seen orbs as they're called by these paranormal researchers. They change color, following me around and uh, responding to um, my actions, things of this kind, uh, from time to time. So anyway, hmm. this, this is what was described. But, I, but I've never felt a feeling of fear. Why would there be a feeling of fear? I wonder. Naturally. The unknown, I mean, something's coming towards you, you don't know what it is, but they describe complete terror. That's the thing. So, I don't know. So, if there's any connection with the Dyatlov Pass incident, who knows? Uh, my own thoughts, again, given the time and place, I tend to favor that military accident theory. Uh, we can't ignore the disappearances and deaths that occur frequently in wilderness areas under mysterious circumstances today. That's frequently coming up in the news. And yeah. very often, they're, and as I say, they're, they're uh, unexplained. As for finding answers in the Dyatlov case, we can't forget the simple fact of government ineptitude, as we mentioned. And then again, the USSR ran everything. Much of it was corrupt. Criminal investigations were often uh, slipshod and incomplete. Officials said and did all kinds of things to cover up their own incompetence. And that did not stop with uh, uh, lying about it, sometimes stealing or tampering with evidence. There, there you go. Uh, that background just makes the whole Dyatlov case harder to investigate. So we're just about out of time here. And um, the, you can find there's plenty of information on the Internet, et cetera, on this. Or write to us. We'll look into it for you, whatever you want to find out. There's a foundation in Russia now uh, to perpetuate the memory of the students and to... Uh, and supposedly they're reopening the investigation, too. Well, what do you do? We talk about yeah, yeah, the whole exactly. case. <laughs> Good pun. Yeah, exactly. Well, anyway... So anyway, uh, on to our announcements. Indeed. So you can visit our show website at BehindTheParanormal.com where you can find nearly 600 free podcasts of past shows uh, from both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio along with special shows and podcasts. And you can find my books on uh, Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook, and The Usual Suspects. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I'll be happy to sign them for you, and you will help us keep all those podcasts free. Also on our websites, you'll find direct links to the several charities uh, that Ben and I have mentioned, including USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Youth Mentoring Connection, uh, doing great stuff and uh, in Los Angeles there. All right, and next Monday, that's March 16th, here on ON1240 and ONWorldwide.com, we will welcome award-winning science journalist Ralph Steiner uh, to discuss the uh, people and events surrounding UFO contact experiences and what might be behind them. I'm behind the paranormal. Ha! Uh, he serves on the board of the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Experiences. Yeah, it's a group I have become involved with. Uh, I don't usually don't join things, but that's a very interesting group, and uh, we'll be telling you more about that next week. So uh, we ask you to uh, stay tuned here on uh, WON1240 for Boston Celtics basketball. And I have no idea who they're playing, but I'm sure it'll be a great game.
So we leave you this evening with a thought from the indefatigable Oscar Wilde. The final mystery is oneself. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.